I wish that the listeners could see Emily getting ready to do a podcast. <laughs> my pump up dance in my head. Yeah, except you have to be really kind of still or you'll knock your microphone off your lap. It's all very precariously situated, but we're good. Welcome to the TV campfire. I'm Caitlin McFarland. This is Emily Gibson. Hello. We're doing our next release of season 11 panels. And, you know, we're in a whole new room. We're trying. We're not in a closet. I feel like that's important that people, I think people picture, well, because I think people picture, unless you're in a studio for a podcast, if people are podcasting at home, which we're doing, they're told to go into a closet. So now you just alerted everyone that we're not recording in a really fancy studio that we've made and invested in and created. Did anyone think that that was what we did? (laughs) Anyone that knows us would not have thought of this. No, probably not. Today's release, Dangerous Women. It's very exciting. Emily, do you consider yourself a dangerous woman? I do not. (laughs) I wish I like paused for this, you know, the hottest of hot seconds to like, could I be a dangerous woman? But no. Do you want to be? No one knows me would think that I was a dangerous woman. I think it would be really fun. I mean, my dream growing up was to be Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. You also want to be real tough. I know. I so badly want to be tough and... uh, I am just not. And I don't know, how do you, how does one become tough? I mean, here we are going to start defining all sorts of things. In in this panel, uh, developed by Jennifer Morgan, who tried to make this panel happen for three years, and then it finally happened this year and had many people that were appropriate for it, in my opinion, some of which we got, and some, anyone on it is appropriate for it, but there were many people that we also weren't able to get. But she defines it as complicated villains in case anybody can hear the the squeaking it's my dog outside we can pause does he want to let dexter in (laughs) he is uh dexter does this very he's a dangerous dog he's a dangerous dog can you get to the door Um, we have created a very precarious scenario where our producer is now (laughs) climbing over my bed to get to the dog who does a fire alarm when he is worried about something he sits outside and he he chirps like a fire detector. Oh, he is he's out. dangerous. He, Dexter, yep. come here. Come here. Yep. Oh, 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 oh. There we go. Poor lie bud. down, Poor please. Bud. Lie down. Oh, lie down. bud. I can't make him lie down if you're petting him. Sorry. I'll ignore him. <laughs> I don't down. see him. Um, okay. Back to a dangerous woman definition. Yes. Is she defined it as complicated villains, unconventional heroes, rule breakers, and everything in between who dare to challenge the status quo and redefine who, what a leading woman can be. I think I'm a rule breaker. Those three things that you listed, and I know it says everything in between, I'm none of those three things. And then- A complicated villain, an unconventional hero, or a rule breaker? Yeah. Zero people that know me would call me a rule breaker. I am. The other thing is, I feel like the, whatever you said about challenges the status quo, I know there's things that we maybe do challenge, but I feel like the- world that I live in and the people I surround myself with all do that. And so I don't feel that I'm challenging the status quo of the people that I am surrounded by. It's an interesting thought and like what makes a dangerous woman. I guess we could talk about who's on it is Leslie Linka Glatter, who we've already spoken is one of our favorite people that we just met, who is directing and EPing a new show that has not come out yet called Love and Death that Texas Monthly It's based on a Texas Monthly article. It's going to be on HBO Max. Valerie Armstrong, who created Kevin Can F Himself, which comes back on August 22nd. I know. For those that want to know. And then Katja Herbers, who's on Evil, which is also airing right now. Melinda Sue Taylor, who is the co-creator, writer, EP of Nancy Drew and Tom Swift, RIP. I know. So good. And Angela Serafin, who's on Westworld which is also airing right now. And she is stunning. Um, not that they aren't all stunning, but in case anyone's wondering, she's not at the beginning of the panel because she was running late and she was very upset because she's always very punctual. She had a wardrobe malfunction and nobody wants to go on stage with wardrobe malfunction. No. So she had to fix it. So she literally, I can picture her like running up the stairs of the Driscoll and I feel like I threw her on a panel. Like as much as like I didn't touch her, but like was like opened a door and was just like, Go, <laughs> go on to this panel, sit down. I just love that this represents directors, executive producers, writers, actors, horror, drama, yep. sci-fi, 
I don't know what Kevin can can fuck himself is actually like it's the like it's one of my favorite things I don't know what she's doing but I think it's just one of the best things ever there's not a real category for it but that makes it even more fun and honestly Annie Murphy and that talk about a dangerous woman absolutely I feel like the best dangerous women are the ones that at face value the people around them don't know that they're dangerous well with that everyone should know that both evil and Westworld had their season finales actually on August 14th so they're all available for you to watch and catch up on and this is moderated by one of our favorite people Tara Ariano of Extra Hot Great so with that enjoy Dangerous Women so we're here to talk about dangerous women. Uh, let's start with that. What makes a woman dangerous? I mean, in television, it seems like it's just being a real person. Uh, if you make her a real person, it's suddenly like, what are we doing? It's ground. It's like, no, no, no. She's just like human and has some flaws, but also has some good parts. It's, it's not that revolutionary to me, but it seems to be. Leslie? I feel very dangerous this morning. <laughs> so watch out. Um, what makes someone a dangerous woman? I think it has to do with being authentically yourself. When I started directing, which was in the dark ages, uh, there were not a lot of women, and I think women felt they had to take on characteristics of men to be successful. And I like being a woman. I reapplied lipstick all day long. So I think it's finding who you are and how you can tell the stories you want to tell in an authentic way. And supporting other women as well. That's dangerous. Katya. Well, I can't top that. I, that was, I, I, I second all of that. Um, yeah, I guess women are, are thought to um, have to adhere to rules, and when we don't do that, we're considered to be dangerous when we're actually just being, you know, as you say, people and our full selves. And so I guess any woman who's, who's trying to live a full life is considered dangerous. So I guess it's all of us, hopefully. <laughs> Ollie, I'll go the other way and say subversive. You know, since I also agree with everything that's been said already, but to add to that, I feel like there's a way to have an impact and to make your mark or say what you have to say in a way that isn't loud necessarily. Sometimes it's great to be loud, and other times, like, just for instance, on Nancy Drew and on Tom Swift, the Drewniverse, we don't use guns at all. My only mandate in the room on day one was there are no guns in the Drewniverse. Not gun violence, not the mention of gunshots, no murder victims died by gunshot wounds. We don't have them as props, we don't have them in paintings, we don't have them in photos. And I feel very strongly about that. I did a lot of soul searching after Sandy Hook. And I was kind of like, I work in media, I go to these movies, you know, what am I doing that is not part of the problem? And so I made a very conscious decision to promote a kind of storytelling that doesn't rely on guns for act outs. If you look at TV, how many times does the commercial break end right after somebody pulls a gun out, right after there's a gunshot fired? How many times is there an opening where it's like gunshot trauma, gunshot trauma, hi. Hello. <laughs> and uh, you look fantastic. I almost wore that fantastic. outfit. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> anyway, you know, on the Antidote, we pride ourselves on finding other ways to tell stories. Same with Tom Swift, that's all. Welcome, Angela Serafin. Angela, thank you for joining us, Angela Serafian. Uh, our first question was, what makes a woman dangerous, in your opinion? Oh, God, what did you guys say? <laughs> I wanted just living out loud, being authentic, telling your stories, telling your, you know, truth, the way that you feel it as a real woman, really, you know, being yourself. Yeah, I love that answer. And I agree. Um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I think, I think if a woman is who she really is, uh, strong, then maybe it is a threat. But I, I don't think there is such a thing as a dangerous woman. I think, I think... I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm sorry. I'm really flustered right now. Um, Isn't that sad, kind of, that we're all saying this thing, like a woman who is her full self is considered dangerous in this society. So it's really up to us to just be really dangerous all the freaking time. And so I we think break men this. should be dangerous. Sorry? I think men should be dangerous, too. Well, they are, too, yeah. false. <laughs> like, they're literally threatening us all the freaking time. Sorry, you guys are all really good, I can tell. I like all y'all, all right? If we're talking about authentic self, yeah, 
I mean, I know I was helped by men when I first started directing. Really great men. So we women need really great men to support us, to be dangerous. But I think that we shift the current state of the world that we're living in by speaking up, by not allowing the things that have gone on for so long to continue as they have, and, and to create a new normal because the old normal does dictate how we fit into a society that was created by old mentalities, I guess. And so that's what makes this really special, is that by really being who we are and not fitting into a cliche, a stereotype of playing almost a character in our own lives, we can tell different stories, to have the risk to tell the different story, to, to have a real voice. So. It's kind of crazy if I can just, I had a thought, I'm just gonna say it. Like how many times you will get a script that has just the most insane scene in there that was clearly written by, you know, a team of men over 65, probably white, that want a young or youngish, um, you know, woman to say that they wanna sleep with them all the time. I get it like maybe two out of three scripts, there's a scene in there where you're like, this is insanity. And that's what we see on TV so often. And I, I really want to name names. Can I name names? Like, I have, I Go have ahead, they're not here. Of screenshots. Like I once got a, I once got a, yeah, I once got a, this was a little like uh, 10 years or something. I got an audition for some something where it said that a woman undressed in front of a mirror. She was looking at her own tits, as we do, <laughs> all right? And um, she was 28, it said. Like, she's 28, but boy, does she look young here. <laughs> and I, I screenshotted it. I sent it to my agents, and I was like, mm, I think I'll pass, okay? The thing that's interesting about what you're saying, Katya, because as a director, I get sent those kind of scripts because, oh, if you hire a woman director, it's okay. There was a year I got sent like five scripts about uh, a brilliant woman therapist by day, but guess what she does at night? Yes! She is what a she do? Uh, yeah. And I'm like, really? But I'm going to say the opposite. What has happened, I think, particularly in streaming and in cable and premium cable is complicated, layered, complex women that are so interesting. So that's the good news about what's happened recently or in the last 10 years is, wow, what a, what a shift for you all. Well, I, I love what you're saying because it just made me think about characters that are not one dimensional to have three-dimensional women, or characters in general. I'm always interested in who is a hero in one story might be the villain in the other. And to have not such clear lines about, it's gotta be this way, it's gotta be, these are the things that are redeeming about someone, but rather to say, what are the things that are flaws? And maybe the things that make us flaws are, are the things that make us special. So maybe that's what makes a woman dangerous but maybe also incredibly powerful. I always go back to that character Catwoman in, in um, the Tim, was it Tim, Tim Burton's? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I love that she was finding her strength in that film, but that strength became uh, a threat because she starts off as this mousy assistant who doesn't have a voice and she finds her voice, but in a world that's quite corrupt. So, so yeah. I, I love you know, sort of yeah, I also shout out to trans women and folks who are, you know, gender non-conforming because that's a different shift that I've really been part of. I'm happy to say on Tom Swift we have more than one trans person. Um, that, you know, storytelling can include a lot of different intersections of identity and that how you are, you know, experiencing your life is something that's super valid to put out there and help people understand as they're watching here just connecting in their own communities kind of like, this is part of life too. This is what it also means to be human and identify as a woman. Feels to me like the the genesis of this panel was to distinguish between the trope of the strong woman who is just sort of a figurehead but doesn't have any needs or desires or drives 
And so I feel like we should, if we're talking tropes, let's turn to Valerie because your show, Kevin Can Fuck Himself, is about dismantling the trope of the killjoy wife to a sitcom man baby. What was most urgent for you to include in the story of Allison's experience? Uh, when I thought of it, the thing that made me really excited to keep thinking about it uh, instead of immediately hating it like I do every idea I have was um, trying to figure out the psychology of that woman because the, the whole point or what I, the whole point of the show, like whenever I saw those billboards around LA of the newest sitcom coming out, the thing that you always say in your head is like, her with him. <laughs> Come on, in what world? Also, in what world uh, is he actually funny? And like, why doesn't she get to say anything? And so making the job of making that a real person really um, attracted me. And saying like, oh, she must have very, like a very traumatized background. Uh, it just, and you know, I always go to mother issues because I see so many daddy issues with male characters. I wanna see like a woman with some mom issues. Uh, and also realizing like what actually attracted her to him in the beginning and what about her thinks that she doesn't deserve better? And that creates, created in my mind like a full person. It was the job of making that trope a full person. Um, and it was, it was really, really entertaining. I, I love doing it. Uh, Leslie, you mentioned that we're sort of in a, an age of streaming, how things have opened up, and, and what sort of defined the earlier years of that age were male anti-heroes like Walter White, Tony Soprano, Don Draper, etc. What, what do you think is important um, in creating a female anti-hero as a tonic sort of to that, that archetype? I mean, having directed a lot of Mad Men, and I loved what that show looked at because it looked at how we got to where we are now. And there was, I directed quite a lot in the beginning, and there was one particular storyline uh, which killed me where, and I think this kind of sums it up, was um, Christina Hendricks, who played Joan, you know, red hair. Um, she uh, was filling in because there had been a big problem with uh, how advertising was put against television programming when television was very new. And she was doing a great job of making choices about what should go with what. But she was just filling in. But when it came time to hire someone for that position, they hired a young man. And they expected her to train him. So, and you saw her face just go, you know, because everyone admitted she was doing a great job, but they didn't hire her. So I think that's really important to look at where we've come from so we can actually make changes. I mean, I spent eight years working on Homeland, uh, which was an extraordinary experience. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and that particular female character was so layered and so complicated and sometimes did horrible things, but was, was always interesting. And I think being able to have that kind of character I, I can't tell you how many times I would be having dinner with Claire Danes and someone would come up and say, thank you so much for showing the disease I have in a real way. And the amount of research that was done, well, I mean, we had so many advisors in that show. We'd spend a week meeting with the heads of the CIA, NSA, DNI, journalists, paramilitary. We talked to Snowden right when he went to Russia. We're a TV show, but it was amazing. So to, to have that kind of platform, to not say this is a white hat or a black hat, this is right and wrong, to say this is complicated, no, it's ambiguous. And I think to have female characters that are that complicated is a fantastic. I'll put this to all the showrunners. What are, I shouldn't phrase it this way, are there some notes that you consistently get when you're creating female characters that are a little bit more complicated? Melinda, you can go first. Well, I don't know about complicated. Broadcast standards, especially, so I'm on the CW, and Nancy Drew at the time was airing at eight o'clock. No, nine o'clock, I'm sorry. Nine o'clock show, which is different from a 10 o'clock show. You can air certain things at 10 o'clock that you cannot air at nine o'clock. And on the CW, you can't do as much as you could do even on ABC, definitely not as much as a streamer or HBO. So we had this scene 
It's a great scene, in my opinion. Nancy and Agent Park, if you watch the show, they have a little encounter in a coat closet, and it's been building for a while that they have this sexual tension, and he confesses his love for her because there's been a truth serum unleashed at the party because it's a mystical show. But he's kind of like, I can't stop thinking about you. If I kissed you, I would never stop. And she's like, well, don't stop. So he starts kissing her, and we had this scene where he sinks to his knees, and off of Nancy's kind of like sigh of delight, end of act theory. And um, we filmed it. It was very tastefully done. It was something I wouldn't have had a problem showing my kids who are teens, but you know, even a younger kid, I could have been like, you know, sometimes grown-ups when they feel like, you know, and they're into it, whatever. But <laughs> and um, Nancy had this moment, so she's wearing this dress with a long slit up the side, and she kind of does this because she's she's giving consent. This is a really important thing on Nancy Drew to show consent between two adults, and she was very clearly into it. It was going great. And we got the note back from broadcasting standards, you cannot show that. You cannot show her pleasure. She's allowed to show surprise on her face. We had to mute her gasp of ecstasy. And we had to go frame by frame on a Zoom with two women lawyers who were equally rolling their eyes and gritting their teeth. And I was just like, you know what? On Riverdale, they had a, Betty's dad had his brains blown out in front of her. Dress got splattered with blood. That's not a problem. This is frame by frame. How, how I get a little interested in this. So, <laughs> sorry. And <laughs> it's truly like it's remarkable the puritanical hypocrisy that happens in broadcast standards. But what so, is the logic? So I'm so baffled right now. The, the I don't baffle get it. is that if her hand is going up to here and her dress is hiking like that, it could be mistaken for she's itchy. Or she's experiencing some other physical sensation other than consensual pleasure in a sex act with a guy who she's interested in, who's a terrific person with a great job. We'd sit here all these degrees. I mean, it's not even like he's a bad boy. He's an FBI agent. So, you know, we were kind of frame by frame. This is okay. This is okay. This much showing, this much thigh showing that she's clearly giving permission for oral sex, that she wants it, not okay. Go back a frame. Okay, we can put that on the air. So that's enraging. And but. it's just, in BSMP, it's just somebody's idea. Like, it's all subjective. There aren't a li list of rules. It's just fear of being sued. Like, it's yeah. not even, yeah. it's completely subjective to those lawyers who all, also end up having to say the most crass things, like BSMP standards, the notes you get. One time, I was on a show that uh, the, the line, no cumin in the egg salad. They were like, you, you can't say that. <laughs> and they thought it said, no cum in the egg salad. <laughs> and it was like, no. I, by the way, I was just an assistant on this pilot, but I will never, ever forget that. I was like, in Incredible. what world is she saying this at work? You're it's not allowed to, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go even... That is hilarious. Uh, I, I, again, have been working in premium cable and streaming, so I haven't had the same set of rules in a while. But going back to my first series, which was Twin Peaks... Uh, thank you. David Lynch, man. Uh, for ABC. Imagine. Okay, I think they didn't know how to give a note. They looked at this weird show. It's like, what do you say? The woman with the curtain rod runners, like with the eye patch, you know, she needs a, a better color palette. No, but there was a scene, if everyone, anyone has seen the show and remembers, Sherilyn Fenn, who was the most amazing looking high school girl you've ever seen. Um, she was following uh, leads. So she went underground and took a job in a brothel where Blackie was the madam. And she came in to apply for the job and there's a drink that Blackie is drinking with a maraschino cherry in it. And she, Blackie asks her, what are your qualifications? She takes the cherry, twists, does this, throws the, the stem back on the table, it's tied in a bow, and she says, you're hired. So ABC was like, well, we're worried this has to do with oral sex. <laughs> and David Lynch says, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's in the show. 
I'm going to steal that. Absolutely not. I'm offended. Yeah. I'm using that. Oh, Turn so it back. For the actors, um, is it predictable what kind of pushback that you get from, from viewers or from people on set when you embody a female character who is morally complex? Can you, either one of you, go Right to me. Um, I do play a prostitute on Westworld, and I feel proud about it because she's a working woman, and at the time, they were working women. They, it wasn't at all about drugs and torture and sex slaves. It was really about this is what I need to do to live. And, and that's who they were. And it's interesting for Clementine, the evolution over the years. Because you start as one thing. I always thought the characters on Westworld were Shakespearean in ways because they're not just what they seem on the page. If you read a Shakespearean character, they have big philosophies, like Romeo and Juliet can talk about the greatest things, but they're only 15 or 14. So I always thought that the character in itself had grown. And interestingly, I think with great writing, it gives you permission as an actor to grow as well. So over the years, I found myself evolving with her. And she found her strength in season two. And she really became this kind of <laughs> had a lobotomy, but this neutral thing that wasn't defined by, by gender which I thought was really strong. And then she found her freedom in season three. So uh, I always question what we call, uh, what is the word you use? I think I said morally complex. Yeah, immoral. Like, what is, what is that? What does that actually mean? I love Homeland, and when you were talking about her character, I was just going, I, I remember I was obsessively actually watching it for season four, just for inspiration. <laughs> Just watching her evolution, the things that she goes through, the things that the world would see as immor immoral, and going, she's just trying to survive. She's trying to find her way. This is, we need people like her, because she can only do what she can do. And so we really need to redefine what is immoral, I think. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Katya, your two most recent TV roles on Evil and on Westworld have uh, women leading the creative team behind the camera. How does it affect your process developing characters when that's the case? When they're women, um, I, it's just better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's better. And I've worked with really great men. I've, I've, I, I actually am from Holland, and I, I had a, a really nice life there. And, <laughs> um, you know, theater and interesting roles and... Um, and then I thought, I'll try to go to America, but I only want to do things that I would want to watch myself. I, I, I don't want to be homesick and do something that isn't great. So I've always just followed the writing and looked at people who I thought were kind people, also so great, <laughs> and intelligent and funny. And um, so I've turned down a lot of things that I, I just didn't like the writing. And it's it really, if it's not on the page, you're not going to... You can make it a little bit better, but not a lot. Like good writing, I think you have, you can make better, more better, how do you say? Yeah, more better than you can make bad writing better. Um, so um, yeah, I've just been really fortunate and unemployed for, for a good bunch as well, because you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Leslie, your next project, which we were talking about earlier, is Love and Death, made right here in Austin. Uh, it's the, the, the true story of a woman so dangerous, she killed someone. Um, you also directed the first two episodes of Law and Order True Crime about the Menendez murders. How does it change your process? Let me change, turn the page. Working on stories about real people when they're, some of them are still alive. That is, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think you have to be incredibly careful because, and be very clear about the kind of story you're telling and not to make judgments. I believe, you know, to present different points of view of these characters. So we approach Love and Death. Uh, it was an incredible group of people. We did film here in Austin, which was an amazing experience. Loved it. I was here from July, which was very hot, uh, to April, uh, and had an amazing experience here. So it's a story set in 1978, seven hours, based on a Texas Monthly story and a nonfiction book, and we tried to stay very truthful to the story. And... Uh, 
It, it stars Elizabeth Olsen, Jesse Plemons, Lily Rabe, Patrick Fugit, Brian Darcy James, Kristen Ritter, amazing cast, uh, and uh, Tom Pelfrey. Uh, the whole cast is extraordinary. And uh, I feel like the story is not just a true crime story, I think it's an American tragedy. So we tried to look uh, a bigger picture about America at that particular time, particularly women in that particular time. Also a very complicated woman who does something horrible, not validating the actions in any way, but looking at all sides of this horrible scenario. So I'm really excited about it. David E. Kelly wrote all seven episodes. Um, I directed five of the seven. The other two were directed by an incredible director, Clark Johnson. Yeah, who did the pilot of The Wire, one of the great shows, and The Shield. Uh, so we had an amazing team. But I think you have to be really respectful of the truth. You know, as much as one can know the truth, you know, and look at all sides of it. Uh, you already talked about Homeland earlier. Uh, what was it like to work with Claire Danes for so many years and build that relationship for, and that character with her? Um, she is the real deal. She is an amazing person, uh, as well as an incredible actress who made me a more fearless director. And she will go anywhere necessary to find that truth. And it doesn't matter, she's a beautiful woman, she did not care, she was in and out of hair and makeup. Carrie Matheson is a CIA agent, she does not spend hours in front of the mirror. She, the, her best friend is her crossbody handbag. Like, she, you know, she is, she has a mission. And because we had so much support from, I think the intelligence community wanted us to get it right versus get it wrong, which is why they were so uh, helpful. But we had, Carrie Matheson was based on a real person uh, who is extraordinary. So things that the character did, like going out in the middle of the night dressed as a man in Iraq, that's what our Prototype. That's what she actually did. So uh, that's very much based on truth. And because we would go to DC and ask, you know, former heads of the CIA, you know, what keeps you up at night? What's your deepest fears? And that's where the season would come from. So we didn't impose a story. When they ta started talking about Russia, it was years before it was in the news. And we're like, Russia? Why is that? They're gone. They're done. You know, no, so we were dealing with that subject matter years before it was in the public zeitgeist. So that was exciting, and also we felt like it was a huge responsibility. In addition to that, you also pop in and do just one or two episodes of a lot of different kinds of shows. What are the challenges and the pleasures of just being uh, hired on for, for just one? That's a, really good, that's a really good question. So as a producing director, an executive producer and a director, I feel like you're looking at the whole novel of a 12-hour story, and you want each chapter of that novel to be amazing. So when I'm a producing director, I want to give the director of that episode everything they need to tell the best hour of that story ever. Yeah. And uh, when you come in as a guest, you're coming in to somebody else's playpen. And it could be the most fantastic working environment, or it could be completely toxic. And you don't know what you're walking into, and you still have to make it work no matter what. Like on Homeland, all of my shows, I have a total no asshole policy. Yes. You treat everyone, yeah. So you treat everyone with respect. Every job is important, it's a team sport. You're only as good as your team. So I wanna be the, I don't wanna be in the room I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I want to be in the room with the smartest people. I'm taking her home. Like, I don't know how to kidnap this woman. <laughs> so, you know, when you're going in, you have to make it work. And Paris Barclay, I don't know if anyone knew it, he was an amazing director, great friend of mine. Um, he describes it as you're going into someone else's kitchen and you have to, you have to cook a gourmet meal, but you're only given the ingredients that they have for you. But you still have to make the best meal possible. That's a great analogy of going into somebody else's show. And you still have to do the best job. You might really want some cumin, but, <laughs> but it might not be the ingredients of that show. 
So it's, it's a really interesting muscle flexing experience. Again, because I came out of modern dance and, and choreography, I can't take things I don't like. So even if it's just for an hour episode, I still have to relate to the material. So since you brought it up, what, what, are, what did you learn about directing from being a choreographer? Everything moves all the time. Uh, it, so, well, things like being a dancer, you can't cheat. Your leg goes up in the air or it doesn't. It doesn't matter if I tell you how fantastic I am and you're gonna see my leg is like, you know, shaking. So you have to do your homework. You, you have to go from point A to point B to point C. You want as many colors in your paint box as possible. So I, the minute I decided I was going to direct, I went back to acting class. I studied camera. I tried to get as many colors for my new paint box as I could. But what's great about dance, like I do a lot of action. And I only care about action if it moves the story forward. I don't care about blowing up a truck, who cares? But if it's going to tell me something about my character, fantastic. But dance is action. Dance is moving people through space. So it's not a gender thing. Somehow this idea that, that men direct action better based on what? You know, it's a crazy thing. Like I understand if it's military and you've actually served your country, I get that. But, you know, so I do a lot of action, but for me it's choreography. So I think it all, you know, it's all so related. Let's go back to Valerie. Um, the, and the Dangerous Women at the Heart of Your Show, played by Annie Murphy and Mary Hollison Bowden, if that relationship doesn't work, the show doesn't work. How intense was the casting process with them? I was anxious. Um, because to me, when I was thinking about the show and the like earliest days of it, um, I, I was like, all right, she's miserable in her marriage. That's something. Uh, and then I realized like, oh, uh, what, what are other tropes I see in sitcoms? It's the brash neighbor. Um, it's Carla to uh, Diane in Cheers. And I thought, oh, if this is a slow burn, like female friendship love story, I can tell that for years. That's all I wanna see, that's all I wanna write. I wanna write women being good to each other, particularly women who've been pitted against each other for years. So that's how I start them, is they are at odds. They've looked at each other in the same room for 10 years and thought, um, I don't like that kind of girl. I'm not that kind of girl. And they slowly realize that they have everything in common, even if they're completely different, and that they've been each other's saviors and been so close to each other for the last 10 years, but missed each other. And you know, they could have, they, they've both been miserable and they could have been okay. And so telling that story has been really, really rewarding, but very terrifying to cast. Um, I, I actually uh, saw Mary Hollis Imboden in an episode of Shrill, and I was watching everything with the lens of like trying to cast at that time, and she had two scenes in this episode, not at all like Patty, not one bit like Patty, but I was like, that's her. I don't know why I knew it, but I was like, that's her. And then uh, Annie came later, and we weren't gonna cast anybody before we cast Allison. We found Annie, and the moment that those two got in a room, they hugged each other, and we said, oh, how do you know each other? They said, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they took that relationship so seriously. They know, I, I've told them from the beginning, that is the heart of the show to me, and they, they really did everything they could to make it what it is, uh, and you know, they are, in real life, best friends and adorable. And uh, I got incredibly lucky because you can hope, like it, with every, every cast, you, it seems like it'll work. Why else would we do it, right? Like why else would we cast them? Uh, and then there's just something that happens on set or it doesn't. And uh, we got very, very lucky it did happen on set. Well, let's turn to the actors then. How, how rare is it to have that kind of chemistry? Or is that something that you can, you can manufacture or fake? Katya, go first. Um, I think you can. I, I've got some tricks. <laughs> so I think you can do it. It's so much better when you don't have to force it. But there, there are things that I think you can do, and it'll read. Because I've gotten feedback from directors often going like, didn't we get lucky with that casting? And I'm like, oh, well, I'll just shush it. But like... <laughs> The amount of flirting I had to do with that person 
the amount of like projection and like fantasies I had to put on that person to make it feel like we had something going on, that was a lot of work. But I'll, I'll, I'll let you think it was all casting. Uh, that's fine. Um, so yeah, there's that. Can I just say something else? Is, is every woman freezing in this room? Because I feel like it, this, this is like a female panel, but it's like, it, we're, we're, we've tempered for men. Oh my God, you're a darling. Yeah. Is it possible? I don't know if it's possible, but it's so funny. Yay! Um, and then I got very lucky with um, like the current show I'm doing. Thank you. So nice. And I look better too. No, yeah. no it does. It's really cute. <laughs> um, the current show. I, I don't have to fabricate the chemistry between you know Mike, Mike, Mike Coulter and Asif Manvi. We're like this trio, and we have the we like a ridiculous amount of fun. Um, Liz from Paramount Plus is sitting there. Like she literally has to. She, when we're, when we're together, we're like little children and we just get completely insane and inappropriate and awful. But if you put a camera on it, I think it, it, it's fun. <laughs> so, um, yes. I rest my case. Bye. Angela, playing a sex worker, I mean, manufacturing chemistry, that's the job. Well, maybe. I have a different approach, actually. I think that chemistry is... You know, there is like this idea that we have to meet the demands of what's written on the page. But I also think there's always something going on. So I kind of lean towards that. And I like to kind of reach the person when they are most challenged instead of trying to deliver what is expected. Because I think there's so much space. There's a lot of space if you look at material. Because I, I, I look at it like this. I go, okay, what's written on the page? Uh, a likes B, B likes C, or do they? Because I don't know if we really just like someone or just have this romance. I go, and then I go, okay, that's the, the character, right? Now I like, I, I'm acting with you. What's happening here? <laughs> so it's, it's you and I married to the page. So what the chemistry of the page and us, and what does that bring? And usually I play that truth. I try to find the truth between all of that. And I think it's much more complex and more fun to approach it that way for me personally. Um, but then I'll get a note saying, you know, Angela, we just need you to smile a little bit more here. <laughs> and then I go, oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I know what they want. So then, you know, of course I have the tools to do that, but I always try to find more of the truth of what's going on. Um, and acting like that also makes my job more exciting because when people do bring stuff off the page in ways that I didn't hear at all, it means like, oh, I get to write to that. Let's change the next like three episodes of that relationship more. I mean, really bummed in the series finale of my show, I put two characters together that never had a scene. I was like, well, maybe we do a spinoff? Like they're great together. <laughs> but I didn't, I couldn't have told you that. And the choices that they made were ones that I didn't see coming. And uh, it, it's just, it's so helpful when you have actors like that because it means that you get to write things that didn't occur to you. It makes it more of a team sport. Yeah, I will say also that fan response online is often something that I don't wanna say we are guided by it so much, but we take notice, you know, it's kind of like- Careful, the, these are fans. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, in a complimentary way, it's like, you know, the Nancy and Ace shippers they were very vocal from the beginning, and we could also see it on the page, and we could see it on set, and uh, I will credit myself with Alex Saxon's audition. I was like, oh, he could be a love interest for Nancy, and the part was not originally written that way, but just when he walked in, I was like, that would be an interesting pair, and I was right. I'd like to talk about how I was right, <laughs> but I also feel like, you know, when the fans respond, it does make an impact, so definitely, you know, tweet about things. If you like a relationship and you could see it going a certain way, or you're just kind of, like, excited about what these two people connect over, that's worth knowing, even on a writing level, even if it's not about romance, it's kind of like, oh, they'd be a great friend pair. Oh, this is a really funny friend and me story, or like, you know, buddy cop, good cop, bad cop. It's sort of like, we really do scour the tweets, I will admit, and you know, I think You it's know what I think? It's, it's interesting what you both are saying, kind of everyone here today, because I was thinking, it's a living art. You know, writing is a living art. We are living people coming to it, and hopefully, What's written on the page also is part of our subconscious. And once we come to it, we're also bringing our subconscious. So how we experience it's gonna bring different things up. So the chemistry, the ingredients of the soup will be different because they're not just a formula. 
you know. And yeah. speaking to that, which I think is so important, what you're saying is that as a director, you want to create an environment where the actors feel safe to go to those places and to explore. And, you know, listen, actors show us something about the human condition, you know, and they open things up in a way that we might, might not see. And you want to create a world where that opportunity for something extraordinary that was not on the page could happen. And that's one of the joys, you know, I love coming and being surprised, but I have also had actors like Rupert Friend in Homeland was not supposed to be a big character, but because when he came in, he fulfilled, he was so amazing, you know, and, and I was, happened to be directing on his first time shooting, and it was extraordinary figuring out who that character was, you know, with that actor. Yeah. yeah, you could see it. So, and, oh God, there's stories from West Wing. Janelle Maloney was cast as a day player. Yeah. So it's like when that happens, mm -hmm. you guys as writers, yeah. you know, you're like, whoa, there's yeah. something here to explore. I want to give a shout out also to the crew, the giant production of people who puts these things together. There are 200 people behind the scenes before anybody sees a frame. I mean, weeks. Weeks of preparation, every meeting from like, if we did this scene, there would be a conversation about how many water bottles, is there a carpet on yeah. the stage, is there signage, who's gonna make that screen thing, is it gonna run or is that gonna be a burn-in in post? Are these lamps working or are they just props? There are all these departments, every department has a meeting, we go through the script many, 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 many times, and every, you know, how many folks are in the audience, how many, you know, folks of what sort of backgrounds, what is the age range in the audience, are they sitting on chairs, are they sitting on bleachers, are they wearing shoes? Will we ever see their feet? I mean, it's seriously, it's so many things. And so the chemistry on set is also a product of that. Very I have a, much. Oh, yeah, a fond memory of shooting the Vampire Diaries. So we had a crazy storyline where a witch had been trapped on a prison planet for decades. <laughs> he came back, there were portal, and he was, you know, wandering around a high school. He had not been in high school since 1996. And so he's stalking other vampires and he is like drinking a soda. And so part of it was kind of like the director wanted to have a moment where he's by himself. We want this angle so we can see the other people approaching down the hall. They're wearing invisibility cloaks that so we're hoping they're not seeing. And so we are also with this guy who has been trapped on a planet where it's eternally 1996, drinking a soda. He comes around a corner, he doesn't know what to do with the can. And he sees this like recycling bin and a regular thing. And somebody from art department had put up a little recycling club thing, and somebody from art department, or props had thought to put two of, these, two of these cans. And on set, we were like, he wouldn't know what recycling is. <laughs> you know? So we built this moment where he's kind of like, mm, all right, you know, <laughs> and then figures it out in the present moment of this eternal being's existence, having been transported from the prison planet. But it all came together. So all these folks create what you're seeing. So appreciating them. I, I'd like to say also, like, in terms of how important the crew is, you can also have, if you don't feel, I guess there's a chemistry of the set, mm. and if that's a positive energy, like uh, you know what was just said, um, that is so very important. I personally shut down as an actor, I feel less open when there's toxicity or when there's a really yelly director, not, you know, not yelling at me, because you know, they'll kiss my ass, but they're, they're yelling at a crew member, and I, I do not know how to, because an actor's job is often to be open and to be responsive, so I, when I come on set, I'm very open and very responsive, and when I hear somebody completely destroying someone, it, I just hate it. I hate it so, so much, and luckily, you know, I haven't had it much, but it does really exist, so and sometimes when you don't have chemistry that much with an actor or, because I, chemistry I think is more than sexual chemistry, it's just connection or like energy, right? But that energy can also be with the, with the, with the woman holding the boom. Yeah. And, and I actually found it harder to act during COVID because the crew was masked and we weren't. And I realized how much of my work has to, do with also connecting with the people who are behind the camera. Like an audience, maybe because I'm from the theater, I don't know if you have the same thing, but when I couldn't see their faces and couldn't feel like little responses, I, there was less of a communication. Um, I, I could just talk on that because uh, during COVID I was working on a film in, in Louisiana and the crew was so lovely and I didn't see their faces. Like they were completely covered, but I could see their eyes 
And I remember there was this one scene they had rewritten and we had to shoot it in the morning. And the other actor and I couldn't find it, but then I looked over to my boom guy and I was like, I just immediately got it. I, I got it. And it was him, and I told him, I said, thank you. Thank you for being present. Because we couldn't find it in this moment. Because it was, it was just, the circumstances were just, it was very last minute. But he helped us find that moment. So I very much agree. We all, we all like it's in theater, the audience can change the performance of the night. Because we're all one, you know? It's our experience. Just like, I guess, today with yeah. each other. It's interesting, I will reflect also that in writers' rooms, we've been entirely on Zoom since the pandemic. Some of our writers have young kids and we don't want to, you know, unnecessarily expose them and so, and it's cheaper for the studio. So, we're on Zoom all the time, it's fine. I don't miss commuting, I admit, you know, and uh, there's a lot of convenience when you're on multiple productions, you click one link and you're in another meeting now and you're in the sound mix and, you know, it's all virtual. But in a writer's room, there would be a lot of chit-chat about, like, I love your shoes, which I do, by the way. And, you know, kind of like chatting at the coffee maker or having a walk at lunchtime or just kind of like bouncing around story ideas. It's very casual. And there was an alchemy to that as well, which is really missing, especially for the assistants coming up. It's part of the perks of the job being an assistant, that you get free snacks. Sometimes your lunch is paid for. And you get to talk to writers who will become your mentors and introduce you and read your sample and give you tips and show you in the room how to behave in a group of writers, which is very, like, it's a complex situation. There's sometimes, depending on the group, there can be politics. There's always a kind of flow to the conversation, which is very difficult to grasp on Zoom. Because a box lights up and everybody, like, stumbles over themselves, like, oh, no, you go, you go, you go. And it's just like, I will say, for heaven's sake, somebody talk. <laughs> you know, I will actually get really irritated with it. But in a writer's room, there's not this natural dinner party kind of conversation on Zoom. You know, it can be very efficient, but it's not the same. So just so you know, that's going on as well. Casting question for you as well, Melinda. Mm -hmm. What is it? What are the challenges of finding the right people when your your characters are very young? This might be their big break, and they don't have much of a track record. How was that process? Do you mean and for, uh, yeah, for Nancy Drew? Oh well, we auditioned like four thousand women for Nancy Drew, and they sent in tapes from all over the world. We narrowed it down. Kennedy McMahon's amazing. She's just like if anyone ever gets a chance to work with her, she will every single time nail the choreography of the scene, when she tucks her hair. This is something that's really mysterious to me. Like actors, completely in the moment, always tuck their hair at the exact same moment. Like, how do you do that? I need to ask you later on. Because I, I'm like very random in how I move my body around myself. But um, she was great. The other actors, you know, they had come up the ranks as people doing roles as younger people. And so a lot of them had a fair amount of experience. Also, Secret on the CW, if you, somebody is playing 19, they're probably not actually 19, usually, not usually, not always, but um, so we have like Junji who plays Nick, who in the show is 19 or 18, he's a Shakespearean trained actor from the UK, he's Scottish, you'd never know, he's like extremely experienced, and so we would just like have a very exhaustive audition process. I have to say, having, you know, though I've done all this heavy stuff, I directed the pilot of the Gilmore Girls, and Yay, oh my God. I just had dinner with Amy Sherman Palladino, and we had so much fun together, who wrote the pilot and is, you know, Miss, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel as well. But those were all young people. Alexis Bledel was 16. She had done one school play. Oh, no, she was 17. She had done one school play in New York at NYU. And we read, I can't tell you how many young women we read, uh, because it was a really tricky part. And we also decided there was a reference to Jack Kerouac in the first script that we decided we would never cast anyone who, who pronounced it Jack Kerouac. <laughs> so that was a big, yeah. So, but we, we probably read Alexis, I can't even tell you to go, okay, she's the one. But I had a panic attack the first day of filming where I was doing a huge shot in one where she had tons of dialogue. And I'm like, is this gonna be a disaster? And she was amazing. Also, Jared Padalecki, it was his oh. first job. Was and the, it was someone else in the original pilot, Yes, right? and as well as a movie called Now and Then, which was all young girls, yeah. So, you know, you, you it, I love that. I think it's really exciting to like, okay, that, that young person is so interesting, yeah. 
Uh, we're going to throw it open to audience questions. I think someone is someone going to come around with a mic, or you just get up and yell. Get up and yell. Go, go ahead. Um, this question is mostly for Leslie, just because of the length of time. But I'm just curious. This word didn't come up, which is kind of amazing. I just want to talk about the word likable. The evolution of what you've seen in terms of how important that has been to make a woman likable versus where we've maybe evolved to, and whether that's still important. And you mentioned Carrie Matheson. I remember the first time I saw the Shameless pilot, and I saw Emmy Rossum, and I was like holy shit, like this is what it's like when you don't care if a woman is likable. So I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on that. That is a great question because I do believe, you know, many years ago, you know, you guys wouldn't know that, but um, that that was really important for women. Women had to be likable and not offensive and, not, you know, all the rough edges uh, taken away. And I, that is not the case anymore. And I think that's great for storytelling. Uh, the more diverse the storytelling, the more different kinds of stories, the more different kinds of complicated women and men, the better. Because it reflects something about our culture and society. So I, I think it's changed in a positive way. I kept expecting to get that note. I was so ready for, yeah. for someone to say, like, she's trying to kill her husband. Can't she do something like a yeah. little bit more likable? <laughs> but I never, ever got that note. And it was such a breath of fresh air. Maybe that's what happens when yes. you sell a show to a room full of women um, who just wanted to see what we always said was, we don't endorse the behavior. We are trying to understand why she thinks this is what she has to do. And as long as we did that, everybody was, everybody was cool with it. And also female friendships. I think exploring female friendships in a real way uh, is also something now that we can do. You know, it doesn't have to be the cute, perky, best friend next door. You know, it can be more complicated. I mean, Melinda, before you were a showrunner, you were a story analyst. Was this something that oh. you encountered a lot in that, in that career? That's it. Wow, you did a deep dive on me. Thank you. <laughs> I think it was less of an issue because I was looking for, I was a reader for Dustin Hoffman's company. And uh, we were looking for all sorts of things. You know, he could direct, he was more of a producer at that time or, or acting. And, um, you know, at that time, like, what has Dustin Hoffman not done yet? And so that was kind of the, actually really helpful as a writer to know, like, oh, how do I get a director or an actor interested in this role, this script? Like, what are the visuals? What's the journey? But um, so in the story analyst area, it was not as much of an issue. We were just looking for interesting stuff. But I think that, you know, I still get the note about likability of characters. I think it's more about, in my opinion, the audience needing to root for them. That's something you get a lot, but what's rootable about this character? But I, I think, for me, for the kinds of shows that I like working on and just the kinds of shows I like to watch, this is really subjective. I do like to root for the characters. I don't like to watch something that's like gonna make me feel depressed or hate humanity or just like feel there's no hope in the world. That's not my thing, so. <laughs> well, my character on Evil, um, um, she kills someone. Um, a, a serial killer totally would kill him again. Um, he, 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 he was after my children, um, and um, I just and then and then she had like some other things going on, and she started beating up people at supermarkets who cut in front of her. And like, she's a hoot; she's really fun. And um, the, I just love the response that we got from 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 people watching the show, saying. Kristen Bouchard, that's the character's name, has never done anything wrong in her life. She's my hero. And, um, so I think, and I was watching the Alanis Morissette documentary, Jagged, I don't know if you, you guys have seen it, on the, on the plane over here, and when these people in power realize that there is just such a market for, for women who are this complex, um, yeah, my, my sentence stopped. But I just meant, uh, yeah, I'll stop talking. <laughs> Anyone else? Oh, go ahead, you in the corner. Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you so much for this panel. It's really wonderful to hear your insight and your perspectives. Uh, I was raised by a uh, single mom. I have five sisters. So I was raised by six dangerous women. Um, and I've always been, um, I'm, and I'm very lucky that I have a partner in my life who is one of the most amazing dangerous women that I know. Aww. Um, artistically and spiritually and emotionally. Uh, we, I, I proposed to her uh, four years ago today, um, but I'm not oh going to do God, it today. I was hoping a proposal was coming. I'm so sorry. I'm so, I'm, tangent, tangent, tangent. No, but uh, Lisa, what you said about being dangerous men, I think that's also very important. Um, and it's our authenticity, yes. 
but also I think we need to be um, advocates and partners. And we need to um, hold each other, all of us dangerous men need to hold each other accountable um, and to avoid the objectification and to lift up and empower the dangerous women in our lives because that is how we're going to grow and that is how we're going to achieve greater things as a humanity, right? Support each other in our efforts, in our, in our you know, uh, sorry, I'm getting nervous, our, our equitable rights. And if you don't want to have children, get a vasectomy, all right? It's okay. Let's support each other. They're reversible. You're awesome. Thank They're reversible. you. Oh, so my question, I'm sorry, my question. Uh, uh, I'll get off the soapbox for a second. My question, um, who is your favorite dangerous woman on television right now? Or who is your dangerous woman you wish was still on television right now? Maggie Smith, Downton Abbey. I love her. I love her because she would say the things that nobody would say, that everybody's thinking, or she would say the things that were so completely oblivious that it was kind of amazing, but it also shone a light on what was going on at the time. Like my favorite line of hers, they were talking about something plans for the weekend, and she says, what is a weekend? <laughs> uh, I'm watching, we just wrapped, so I'm watching everything possible right now. So, but the only thing that's come to mind in this moment is uh, Betty Gilpin on Gaslit. Oh my God, she is incredible. I mean, she's incredible in everything, but Mo uh, on Gaslit is really someone I'm enjoying watching right now. I'm also doing the same thing. I'm getting caught up on, on everything. And one of the things that really, I don't know, one of the shows that really moved me this year was Made. Because it took some things that we've seen go in one direction completely another way. And I thought Margaret Qualley, as a young actor, did such an incredible job. In, with that character. Yeah, I, so, watch, I watch violent stuff, I watch the boys, I watch all kinds of action things, and I have never felt more tense than the moment where she's at a client's house and has a glass I, of wine, and I was like, no! It's, it's an amazing, and I think what you're saying is so important about, yes, it's important to be a dangerous woman, but we have to, this is not about separation. We're at a time where people really need to come together in a big way, so that's really important. And start them young also, dangerous boys, I think, yeah. you know? And having your kids or having kids around you have a good example. I think it's really important to hold yourself to a standard so they know what to do. Any more questions? Go ahead. We all know the, oh, hi, thank you. Um, the, the hero's journey and sort of this arc that's created around a man's archetypal journey. What about the heroine's journey? And is there anything that you're seeing as dangerous women um, that's becoming sort of this new archetype of what the female journey is and what that entails that might be different than that of a man's. Well, I you stumped think, him. I think the, the male anti-heroes, you said, was such a like, trope, right? And it became its own trope, which is funny. But they were so rootable, I guess, because they were kind of living out the male fantasy, if you think about it, which is like they're badass and they get away with everything. Uh, and to me what will make a fantastic female antihero is watching women do stuff not that a man would do, but that I want to do and get away with it. So I think that to me is like the heroine's journey. It's, it's not different, I think, in, at the end of the day, it's, you know, you start the person thinking that they want something, by the end they might get it and don't really need it anymore. That is traditionally what that's supposed to look like, but I think how you get there is, is probably a little bit a different kind of a wish fulfillment uh, and one that I really enjoy watching. Well, I want to talk about mothers for a second and working moms particularly. I'm so tired of reading pilots where like the mom, not that I haven't been this mom, but that she's sort of villainized where the mom who is so busy with her job that she has to buy cupcakes for the bake sale, like that's a character flaw that makes me angry. <laughs> thank you, thank you. It's also like, some people don't like to cook. Even if I'm not busy, you can tell what I brought because it's got a barcode. I'm that person, it's fine. <laughs> but I feel like you know another interesting journey, and there should be many, many journeys, is the one of the mother who is kind of like, oh, I'm still a person and I don't have to define myself by you know, how I pick up after my kids or how I react to my partner or whoever you know, sired my offspring. I feel like it's possible to be a mother and there are you know, trade-offs, I would say. I, I also don't think the word balance really applies to motherhood because there's no balance really. There's kind of like, somebody said that there are, you know, you're always struggling, some balls are made of glass, some are rubber. Some things can be dropped, some things really try not to drop those. 
You know, I think that's all you can do. And a therapist friend of mine was kind of like, all you can really hope for is improvement. You know, <laughs> you're like, here's something I could course correct or I can try to be more together, I can try to be more on time, but don't beat yourself up. I would love to see women not beating themselves up so much for not being perfect. I think, you know, when I was still a choreographer and a dancer, Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces and the heroes, the classic hero's journey was something that really infiltrated my work. And I'm not sure I think a woman's heroic journey is that different, but I do think that the balancing act uh, is, is a, is a different, slightly different one, but not any less heroic of the idea of, quote, having it all, you know, I think we've had to make different kind of choices in that way. And that they're not necessarily good or bad choices, they're just the choices you make. And I think not beating yourself up about those choices, too, is an important one. Yeah. That's our time. Thank you all for being here. Thank, Thank you to our you. panel. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarland, and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas, between June 2nd and 5th, 2022. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.